And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, 2021, and I have my good friend, Dr. Michelle Mazir, who's the medical staff president at Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you today, Dr. Mazir? I'm great. Thanks for asking, Rich. Um, and in addition to that, as I recall, didn't you serve and maybe still do as the co-chair of the COVID team at uh, Edward Elmhurst Health? I am. So there are two of us that basically head up the operations for um, all things COVID across the system. So it's been a really interesting um, year. So I know you're filling in for Pam Dunley today, but uh, as it relates to COVID, we've got the right person on the line. So can you give us a little update on your patient levels currently? I can. So this week, our inpatient numbers, we have 13 positive COVID patients, one of whom is on a ventilator and one waiting for results. Um, Our total COVID deaths has gone from the last time we reported 200, it's gone up to 203. Of the, I think interestingly, of the 13 inpatients, all 13 are unvaccinated um, patients. In DuPage County this week, we had 112,000 cases it's sitting around where, where we reported last time. It was 107,000. DuPage deaths are up to, um, uh, this week, 1,477. Statewide, 1.73 million total COVID cases and 28,877 deaths. Um, as far as recovery, which is way more um exciting to talk about. We have a total of 2,092 discharge COVID patients with a recovery rate of 97%. So it seems like most of the last year and a half plus, there's been a trend in in COVID inpatients, either increasing, decreasing, but it seems like the last couple of months, it's been bouncing back and forth between five and 15. Does that seem to be kind of the the new norm for a while or, or is there a trend in one direction or another? So, gosh, I wish we could say that there is a new norm. I, we have been bouncing back and forth recently um, in the low, the lower um, end of the numbers, which is great for us. I think we've seen a shift um, of COVID positivity away from the inpatient setting more to the outpatient setting, which is good because it means that people are um, not as sick. And I think part of that is because the high-risk um population, the majority of them have been vaccinated and the whole purpose of the vaccine is to avoid, you know, serious illness or hospitalization. So, um, you know, of course we have concern because the weather is turning and we're going to move from outdoors to indoors and the holidays are coming up. So that always kind of puts us on guard um, and makes us a little bit nervous about um, really people still need to be mindful of their masking and their social distancing and the things that have proven to be successful um, while we continue to vaccinate the rest of the population that's not vaccinated yet. I've read about some new antiviral treatments that are in the works, and I'm not sure they're approved yet. In particular, I've read about Pfizer and Merck's um, products. Do you know anything about those and when they 
might receive approval? So I will tell you, um, I, I have learned so much about processes that I had no idea how they worked. And one of them is the FDA approval process, which is, um, in, in my mind, pretty rigorous. I think they're doing their due diligence. I know that they have a meeting scheduled for the end of the month, and the plan is to review those antiviral medications at that time um, to potentially approve uh, emergency use authorization, which is how everything COVID has kind of gone, emergency use authorization for the, the vaccines at first, for the monoclonal antibodies. Um, and they're hopeful that they will be granted that EUA. And then what we will do is um, we have come together as a hospital system through COVID and we put a clinical decisions team together. And so anytime there is some new treatment, new medication, new approach to an existing COVID problem, this team comes together. And I'll be honest with you, it's some of the smartest people I've ever sat in the room with put their minds together um, to decide how we should utilize uh, the medication for our patient population. And so I anticipate that once that um, EUA gets approved, then we will come together and make some recommendations to the organization to make sure that we're using uh, the medications to their uh, full benefit. So if, if people don't have symptoms or very mild symptoms and realize they have COVID because of a test they've had, they might normally not think to call their doctor because they're feeling fine. Is there a reason that they maybe should alert their doctor? Uh, yes, I, I think there are basically two reasons that they should alert their doctor. I still think that the general public is not aware that there actually is an outpatient therapy that is approved. That's the monoclonal antibody therapy. And the goal of that therapy is to reduce hospitalization and ultimately death from COVID. And so there is a subset of the population that is deemed high risk um, who would qualify for that treatment. And we have um, shown a lot of success with the people who have actually received that infusion. Um, it's easy. It's a 15 minute infusion followed by a one hour waiting period. Um, but that potential infusion could save down the road a hospitalization or really critical illness or death from COVID. So I think it's important because your doctor will be familiar with those criteria that would qualify you for monoclonal antibody therapy um, and could get that treatment ordered and scheduled at one of our outpatient facilities. And the other reason I think it's important is because I think that people who have COVID and they generally feel well still need to be really mindful of their quarantine guidance because they may live or be in contact with people who are really at high risk. So I think that's the other reason that it's really important to touch base with your doctor um, so that you are getting the appropriate quarantine guidance. In just in general, um, we know that a lot of people are testing at these um, facilities that are, are not affiliated with a doctor's office or a healthcare system. And I think it's so important for the primary care providers to be aware of what their patients are um, going through so that it is in their medical chart and they have a complete picture of what's going on in their patient's lives. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, as it relates to children now that may or may not be eligible for, for vaccines, can you tell us about uh, the uh, new approvals? And I think they're under emergency authorization, just as uh, a lot of the other um, things we talked about earlier. But what, what age children are eligible and what vaccines are available? 
I actually think this is the most exciting thing we're doing right now is vaccinating children in the age group of 5 to 11. So the Pfizer vaccine has been given granted EUA for children in the age group 5 to 11. It's still two injections three weeks apart. The dosage is lower for this age group. Um, and we have done, we started last week, Thursday was our first day of actually vaccinated. We've done about 1,500 pediatric vaccines um, in that time frame, and it has just really been great for the community. It's, I worked there one day last week, and it's fun to watch. Um, neighbors are bringing their kids in together. Classmates are bringing their kids in together. So it's really been, um, it's been successful, and I think is the next you know, task that we have to um, kind of halt this whole COVID thing from going forward is to get this age group vaccinated. Does it appear that the children in the 5 to 11 group um, experience the same types of side effects as adults? I'll tell you, um, I have not heard any um, stories yet. Now, again, we've been doing it for less than a week of anyone experiencing any severe side effects. And for my friends and family that I have sent to our location, they've had, you know, a little bit of a sore arm and nothing, nothing really more than that. You know, there might be some fatigue, some chills, low grade fever, nausea, that kind of thing. But I have not heard personally of anything more severe than that. Are the numbers that uh, the vaccines have been tested on in that 5 to 11 group, are they anywhere near the size of the population that it was tested on before emergency authorization on adults? Because I would think parents are not really excited about having their kids be guinea pigs, so to speak. Yeah, I think in general, that's the problem with, um, you know, getting approval for pediatric medications is that, uh, you know, parents, their, their job in life is to provide safety for their children. And so they get nervous putting kids in studies and things like that. So yes, the numbers are lower, but having said that, the um, study that the FDA reviewed had 4,600 children in it um, in the age group of five to 11. And what they showed is that the vaccine was 91% effective in preventing COVID in that age group. And they followed those kids for over 126 days. So uh, yes, less than adults, but I still think a substantial number of children were looked at. And, and I don't think anybody would say, oh, a child is just a, a little adult. We know that that's not true, but I think we have so much support for the safety of it in the older age group that I think that um, that 4,600 um, is a decent number to have studied, and um, I think they did their due diligence. It um, it appears to a lot of folks that the the biggest reason that young folks should get vaccinated is not necessarily for their own health, but to keep from spreading it to older people. Would you agree with that statement? I would agree with that. I think that when we are talking about getting vaccinated, um, I think we we have to look at our immediate um, our immediate contacts. And you know, I'm I'm glad to kind of use my own family as an example. My husband and I were able to get vaccinated ahead of our children, obviously. And we really did not change our behavior because we were vaccinated until we had the comfort of all of our kids being vaccinated. Um, so I think it's important understanding what are the individual risk factors within your household, within the school that your kids attend, within your workplace. 
I think that we have to be mindful that there, although we may live in a situation where there's no risk, the people that we come in contact with could be the high-risk person that you actually don't know is the high-risk person. And by you getting vaccinated, you're actually protecting them as well. Well, The last few times I've uh, talked to Pam Dunley, I've asked her about who was eligible for COVID booster shots. And I know that's changed a little bit over the last couple months. So can you give us a rundown on who currently is eligible to receive a booster shot? And then whether it appears that most of the breakthrough cases are people that have not had boosters versus those that have? Sure. I want to make a comment just to clarify, first of all. So there is a third dose that is approved for anybody who is immunocompromised. So if you had Pfizer and Moderna and you were, um, and you are immunocompromised, there was a third dose that was approved um, for that. That's different than a booster shot. So the booster shots are after you have completed your primary series. And for individuals 18 to 49 with underlying medical conditions or occupational exposure risk. So, you know, example, your healthcare workers, um, those qualify for booster 65 years of age and older. And then anybody that resides in a long-term care facility, those are the groups that qualify for a, a booster shot. I think that we are still kind of waiting for some data on whether or not breakthrough cases are happening with booster shots, right? So we just started that um, recently. And so you would wait after your booster for the two weeks to be considered fully immunized. And now I think we'll start to see whether or not we're seeing breakthrough cases in those booster shots. Do you know if the if the booster dose is less than a third dose? The booster doses are the same. Okay. I, it It seems to me like most of the folks that have received a booster, have had even less side effects than they might have had the first couple of rounds. I don't know if you're seeing that, but I I have not talked to anybody who's had any side effects from the booster. Again, I can speak personally to it. I had a sore arm and that was really it. And I actually did have some side effects after my second shot. Um, I have not, we have not gotten any official reports of anybody having significant reactions after the booster. One of the the really perplexing phenomena from the last couple of years is there's been hardly any cases of flu. And I don't know if that's nationwide or just in our area, but we heard that, you know, there were very few cases of flu in the last year because people were masking. And then at the same time, we heard not enough people are masking and that's why COVID keeps spreading. So can you draw any conclusions from that? Yeah, I think two things about that. Last year, we saw no flu cases. We have, or maybe one across the entire system. This year, we have not seen any yet, but really have not amped up our testing for flu yet. We're kind of right at that cusp where we would start to um, test for flu. I think two things. I think for 18 months, we, for the most part, were segregated in our own personal bubbles and really limited how much contact we had with the outside world. And we're very careful about um, who we were interacting with, masks on, masks off, that kind of thing. I think we're in a different place this year. Because all the kids are in school, the viruses are back. So a ton of strep, a ton of the other viruses that we didn't really see before are back. So I do think 
and this is just my personal opinion, I think we're going to see flu this year that we didn't see last year. And I think it's really just based on our activity, to be honest with you. Okay. Can you give us an update on the number uh, in terms of percentage of the hospital employees who are now vaccinated? And then I know the last time I talked to Pam, she said there were only a handful of employees who refused to be vaccinated and left. Can you kind of give us an update on that front? I can. So we um, have made the vaccination a condition of employment. And so since doing that, we are up to over 98% compliance. And if we look at our overall numbers of employees and independent providers, the number that we have lost for not wanting to be vaccinated is very low. It probably sits around 50. Don't quote me on that exact number. But I think that an incredible job has been done educating reluctant people on why the vaccine is safe, why they need it due to their risk factors, um, and just in general trying to remove some of that vaccine hesitancy. I think there was a lot of fear and unfortunately a lot of political input into the vaccine. And I think the organization really worked hard to eliminate that. And I think we're in a really good place right now. When uh, when patients arrive at the hospital, whether they're directly admitted by their physician or whether they, they come to the ER, are they tested for COVID immediately? And if so, how long does it take to get those test results? So we have been very lucky um, with our testing protocols. I know early on in COVID, there were issues with Um, supply of testing and things like that. And currently we are in a position where we are able um, to test and we have various various methods to test and we have supplies in all of them. So right now we're sitting pretty good. Anybody who gets admitted does get a COVID test and we have a very reliable rapid test with a result in 15 minutes. And then otherwise it's really based on the clinical judgment of the physician. So if they Um, you know, see somebody in the ER, even though they think they're going home, if they think they have COVID, they have the ability to um, test for COVID. And we also have it at our outpatient immediate care um, facilities as well. So I know there's a a pending merger with North Shore University Health System. Can you tell me, you know, as a medical staff president in particular, how that might affect the staff if that merger goes through? Yeah, I can tell you. So I have been involved in an initial meeting with some of the administrators and physicians from the North Shore group, and I was very impressed. Um, the, The meetings, the people that I met, it was really an attitude of what can we learn from each other? How can we help each other? How can we better what we're doing? Because maybe Elmhurst does something better than one of their facilities, or maybe they do something better there that we can learn from. So I will say that personally, I have been very encouraged by all of the things that I have been involved in and the reports that are coming from administration. They've been very transparent with us. Um, We have got to meet people from their side. And I think the impressive thing is when you look at the map of coverage, we now have these dedicated community hospitals, which of course at Elmhurst we think is so important. And we've found another group that also values that commitment to the community. And when you look at the coverage now that we have in the state, I really think we have the potential to do um, some really great things 
working together and learning from each other. So I think there's a lot of exciting things to come in the future. Um, and I think from a medical staff standpoint and a patient staff, a patient and community standpoint, I, I think it's all positive right now. Well, that sounds great. And I know uh, you're excited, but I'm sure there's a little bit of anxiety there too. Change is always a little tough, but uh, we know it'll be for the better in the long run. One last thing I want to ask you about, and that is the uh, Elmer's Memorial Hospital Foundation's Autumn Affair, which is on November 19th. And I think there's still time to get uh, tickets for that, right? Always time. So th this is near and dear to my heart. I am the vice chair of the foundation. I've been involved in the foundation for over 10 years. The work that the foundation does to help support the work that the physicians need to do in this building is incredible. And we could not do our jobs without the support of the foundation. And in turn, the foundation could not do their job without the support of the community. And I think now more than ever, it is so important that our communities support um, our hospitals. Um, it, it really is one of the ways that we get the tools that we need to do our jobs. Um, we will always make room for people. So if you did not get a ticket, you, we will we'll figure it out and we will make room. We're doing a hybrid event this year. So we will have people um, in person at the Four Seasons, but we will also have a virtual option. Um, anybody can go on the website, www.autumnaffair.com, and there is all kinds of information. Um, it, it's really a special evening. Um, like I said, the there's so much that we couldn't have done in this organization without the um, impact that came from the community participating with the foundation. And this year, the evening is benefiting our nursing program. I think it's important. Um, I grew up with a mom as a nurse, so I have the most respect for the nursing profession. And I think that to give them this support right now at this time is critical because the work that everybody in healthcare has done over the last 18 months has been incredible, but particularly I think it's time to recognize our nurses. So I think that it is an excellent opportunity for the community to be involved in what goes on here. Well, I would encourage people to, to follow up with that uh, again, November 19th, and it's a hybrid event, both online or in person at the Four Seasons in downtown Chicago. One last thing I want to ask you about personally, and that is uh, with all you've been involved with as co-chair of this, this COVID um, committee, um, are you burned out? How, how has the last year and a half plus played out for you, and uh, how, how do you keep sane? Um, I, I, I don't think anybody would call me sane, but I have <laughs> been lucky, lucky enough to still have a high schooler at home that plays hockey. And so that takes up most of my free time chasing around a high schooler who doesn't want to be chased is, is really, uh, is really a job. And so I think really going home from work, having time with family, having time with friends, um, you know, connecting with people for a long time virtually when that was the only way that we could do it really did help to keep my sanity um, and really just getting away when we can. But I think the other thing is that some of the work we're doing here is so important. So seeing parents so elated that their kids are getting vaccinated, like those are the things that help. Well, thank you for all you've done the last uh, almost two years now. I can't believe how, how long this pandemic's been going. And I appreciate you spending time with us 
here today, Dr. Michelle Mazir. Um, look forward to talking to you again in the future, and you have a great rest of your day. Anytime. Thanks, Rich. It's my pleasure. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.